0: Diverting from the Gospel of John today, because while this next Wednesday is family dinner night, the following Wednesday will begin on Wednesday nights, the book of Ezekiel. And we do that because we want everybody to learn about spaceships and, uh, (laughs) oh my goodness, the things people come up with out of the scriptures. But you know, the scriptures themselves are pretty dramatic. The prophets are extremely dramatic. And uh, we don't believe that we should avoid uh, any book of the Bible, but should pursue those books of the Bible and learn about them. But that's on a Wednesday night, and every time we start a new book, um, I like whether it's a Wednesday or Sunday, um, I still want to do an introduction to it for everyone. We also have uh, a an introduction back over there where Joe Kubish is sitting behind him. He's guarding these. An Introduction to Ezekiel, that's a one-page introduction that gives you a handle on studying it a little bit, and then a one-page study guide for our group discussion. It's not one that will be changed each week. It's got questions on it that you ask yourself along with some information that's going to help those of us that are studying through it together to be able to talk about it, bring up questions, doing three or four chapters a week of overview, and then bringing out highlights to it. So that's how we're going to do Ezekiel. I say that for your benefit, whether you're coming on Wednesday night or not. You're sure welcome to those papers. And perhaps to encourage someone here that, um, you know, if you're not, uh, I know many people are busy, but uh, I wonder when you'll ever study the book of Ezekiel if you don't do it with us. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a thought. So if you have time, if you have time, there's an opportunity for you. And I'm not saying nobody will ever study Ezekiel without me. Uh, We just want to give you the opportunity. So in Ezekiel, I'm going to give you an introduction and then do chapter 4 because there's something I want to have you see in chapter 4 that I want to share, that I want to learn about. And it'll give you a little bit of a picture of how you might be able to study the Old Testament and learn from it. So Father, we pray that you would guide our hearts and minds. And what you say, you would say to us personally as well as collectively And what we do is that we would listen personally and collectively, and we would respond to you as you would deem us needing to respond. Lord, we believe in you, and the things we don't understand, we pray you just give light to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the question is, what lengths will God go to to reach his people? What lengths will God go to? On the back of your bulletin, the back page, I put some scripture that I'm going to read through for you as part of our uh, introduction is to get a handle, and this is the way to study a book, is to find out if it's a prophet speaking, find out where he's talked about or the time he's speaking and the other things that were going on through the books of Kings and Chronicles or any of the other prophets that's speaking. And you can find these kind of combinations even in the back of some Bibles or Uh, you can get um, things that will tell you, or if you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll find the names of the kings there, and you go, oh, that's what was going on, and the name of the prophet will be in there sometimes, so speaking, not always. But this is why Israel and Judah fell, and the first thing you need to know is, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, and he's not the king of Assyria, it's going to tell us the king of Assyria, Hoshea is the king in Israel, the northern kingdom of a divided Israel. Samaria, or Israel, is the north, ten tribes. Judah and Benjamin is the south, with Jerusalem and the temple, a divided kingdom. Israel, or called Samaria in the north, Judah, but also mentioned as Israel in the south. So if you're confused by that when you hear the names and try to figure it out, don't be worried. It's, I don't know why God let it be that way, but he did, okay? And so, in the ninth year of Hosea, Hosea, he was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is 722 BC. The king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile in Assyria. Now, this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up from the land of Egypt, or walked in the custom of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the custom of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel or children of Israel did things secretly which were not right, and they set up for themselves sacred pillars and Asherim. And Asherim were shrines to false gods, and where lewd acts were done in these among these hills and these trees. Okay, they set up Asherim on every high hill. And under every green tree... I'm going to stop for a minute. You know what that means? That means they were dedicated. Yeah. (laughs) They were dedicated to their sin. They were dedicated to their sin. And they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away into exile before them. And they did evil things to provoke the Lord. And they served idols. And it goes on. And then in verse 13... Yet the Lord warned Israel, Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, and a seer isn't like a soothsayer with a crystal ball. it's a, a type of a prophet in the Old Testament, saying, "Turn you from every evil way and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law that I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you through my servant the prophets. However, they did not listen. But stiffened their necks like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made from their, with their fathers and his warnings which he warned them. And it goes on until verse 16. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves. That was with Jeroboam, the first king of that northern kingdom, when he broke off from, Jeroboam, from Rehoboam, Solomon's son. That's when the nation divided. He made for themselves images, even two calves, and made an Asherah. It's a pole for false worship. And worshiped the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments, witchcraft, etc. And sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. Well, it went on from there. The prophets spoke. And in 722, as prophesied, Assyria came down and took the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, Judah, where you mostly read about with the temple and all this, they're watching all this. They're following the path of the people ahead of them. Are you with me? They've been following the same kinds of sins, but not to the degree. Not as quickly, not as vehemently, not as dedicatedly, but yet following that path. And they're watching... And they know what God's word said, and sure enough, what God's word said happens to their brethren up north. Have you ever been going kind of in a similar path with another person who's ahead of you on that path? And you see the disaster that comes that way, and you go, whoa, Nellie. Maybe you didn't say Nellie, but you did say whoa. Okay, did you? have you ever been there? I mean, it could be happening in your own household, you know, a brother or a sister gets gets in trouble for doing the same thing. They're just a further ahead of you. It could be in school. It could be out in the street, picking on somebody who actually can turn and beat, the, beat you up. <laughs> I wasn't going to say a bad word, but it wasn't the best appropriate word. It wasn't going to be the worst. If you're thinking the worst, that's because of your mind, not mine. Okay. So anyway, it could be, you know, with, I didn't pray. I meant to pray, Lord, be with the prisoners, because there are prisoners who are serving Jesus in jail. And seeking to lead others to Christ. And I just add that prayer, Lord, right now, even as we're thinking. Be with them who are bound and imprisoned, as though you were there with them. And we pray you'd help those who've turned to you in jail. To help others turn to you. Amen. So anyway, God God, uh, has given witness to them. In 622, a hundred years after the northern kingdom's taken, there's a king you've heard of because everybody's heard of the good kings. Josiah came came to the kingdom at 8 years old and when he's older he finds somebody finds and he grabs a hold of the old testament the law the torah the five books of moses it's been hidden it's been trashed it hasn't been listened to or read it's been put aside and now it's back in the hands of Josiah. And he reads it and tears his clothes and says, we've got to do something. We're not obeying God. And so he begins to start an obedience to God and calls for repentance. And there is an outbreak of revival, but he's also told by the prophetess Hulda. Yeah, Huldah. That name was popular with Megan and Brittany and Huldah. And you have to pick between those three for the names of your kids. And anyway, Hulda. She says, you know, you are going to live a full life, and judgment will still come, but it'll come after you. And it won't come all at once, God says. It's going to come in pieces, slowly. Oh, I get it. God is mean. God is mean, and he wants to torture his people, slowly bringing judgment to them. And I know people think that way. How foolish. How sad. How sad. In actuality, it's not because God is long-torturing. It's because God is long-suffering. Right. Second Peter 3 says, The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And even in the Old Testament in Israel, in the southern kingdom of Judah, having watched those guys who had much patience dealt with them for their wickedness, now as, as Judah gets wickeder and wickeder, following in the footsteps of, they call it, her sister, that God has sent prophets and prophets and prophets all the time. And God has allowed things to happen to let them see. And things keep happening, but slowly things will happen. What kind of things? Finally, God is very patient, and God is showing grace. But my friends, there comes a point when patience and grace no longer make a difference in the person's life or a nation's life. I know this is not popular or fun, but this is truth. There comes a point where patience and grace are no longer going to accomplish anything in that sense. And so now we have to turn to another way. And God turns to another way by doing what he said he'd do, bringing this judgment on them, but he does it slowly in pieces. So in 605 B.C., um, Um, is when Nebuchadnezzar first comes to Jerusalem and banks against it and says, you're done, and they say, okay, we'll submit to you. And he takes the princes of Israel, of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for you Gentiles. All right. (laughs) He takes these people, the princes, the cream of the crop, and he doesn't just go wipe out Jerusalem. He takes control over it. Some people die, but not very much. They actually give in to him. And it's not like Daniel watched his parents be killed and stuff. I've actually said that before without thinking, is that he was taken in the first wave, and I didn't know that. But forget it. You know, you get talking. Anyway, (laughs) Daniel's taken. It's still a rough deal to be separated from your family, but... Jerusalem's intact, and he puts leaders over it. It says, Just obey me, and I'll keep you intact. I'm going to train up your people in my ways. And, uh, and this was God's judgment that he declared. Well, they don't listen to him, and they keep rebelling against uh, Babylonian rule. And, and God tells them, Listen to that through Jeremiah, but they won't do it. So Ezekiel is taken in, in 597 BC. Remember, we're working our way down to zero from the back, from history. Zero's this way. Coming towards us. So 722, Northern Kingdom. 605, Jerusalem's taken under control. Um, 597, 10,000 people are taken, including Ezekiel, who's probably 28 years old. He's a son of a priest, destined to be a priest at the age of 30. And yet at 28, he's scooped away with the rest of these 10,000. And then eventually, in 586 .BC, that's the number you might be most aware of. 586 BC. is when the total destruction and captivity of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is completely destroyed, and all the people that are many, most of the people, except there's a very poor group of people and um, are taken away captive if they aren't killed. Okay, with me? This is the history. And um, it also has to do with what we're learning. Ezekiel tells us in one, chapter one one through three, he's a priest. It says in the thirtieth year, most scholars believe it's his thirtieth year, and because he, he was taken two years prior, when he was going to begin temple service, instead he's with these captives listening, who are listening still, right as he's there, right as they're in captivity, they're listening to false prophets, ones that are with them, and they're hearing messages from Jerusalem of false prophets that are saying, no worries. I know the economy looks bad now. I know ISIS looks bad now, if I can make a parallel. I know it all looks bad now. But don't worry, everything's going to be just fine. Now, I'm not suggesting it's an exact parallel. I'm just trying to give you a picture in your mind. And if the boot fits. You know, it's like the airplane, the flight attendant going, please fasten your seatbelts and have a nice flight. And just, if you need anything, ask us, and we assure you, Nothing can go wrong. go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. I learned that from my wife. Her family's in the airline industry, so, so someday I'm going to use that. So these guys, nothing can go wrong. We're, going to, we're all coming back to Jerusalem. It's going to be peachy keen. And, and Ezekiel is sent to say, I'm sorry, it's not. What you needed to worry about is, is being right with God and repenting not having your life back that you thought was so great when you were in sin. So um, it's not an easy job. They're hoping for restoration, and they're not listening to Jeremiah. They're not listening to Ezekiel either. And it might amaze us to think he's a watchman over them, it tells us in this, in this book. But for many people, no matter how much a Bible they hear come true, uh, they may not listen. You just have to realize that can happen. And pray, pray for people's hearts and minds to be opened. Because, now, if you have been in the ministry, desire to be in the ministry, and I don't mean a pastor necessarily, but any part of ministry that you've ever been in or desire to be in, check out the call to ministry and how it can be. If you've ever been discouraged in it, check out Ezekiel. Chapter 4, you, are also, you also son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem, so carve out in this clay, The city of Jerusalem, lay siege against it. Build a. He's doing this like a. He's painting a picture with clay, and with you know on the ground there, lay siege against it. Build a siege. It's like playing fort with his friends, you know, kids. Lay siege against it, build a wall against it, heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Make, moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, stare at it like this, you know, something like that, and and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it. And this will be a sign to the house of Israel. Wow, a clay model, that's not that hard to do. And it pictures Jerusalem under siege, which they're going to be and are, and then they're going to be destroyed. And he's trying to tell them the truth and paint a picture, and God's giving him a dramatic way to do it. Um, Well, that's not too hard, but wait, there's more. Verses 4 through 8. Lie on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days, so shall you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. This shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, forty days I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem, your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you've ended the days of your siege. Couldn't I just keep making clay stuff? <laughs> On his side, 390 years. It was about 390 years, and I could give you the math, but if you're interested, I'll give it to you later so I don't take more time. From Jeroboam's first break-off of Jerusalem and, his, and Judah in the south when he built those two calves and began the, the worship of idols so blatantly, and that's a day for every uh, year, right up to this point, and the point of the destruction, excuse me. And then the 40 for Judah, just as far as I can tell, it's just the 40 is the number of judgment, you know, 40 days of judgment with, uh, what's his name, Noah, <laughs> and 40 years in the wilderness, et cetera, for Judah's rebellion. There are different views about how those all fit, but it's the same concept several possibilities in those, but the ropes refer back to chapter 325. I'll read it to you. He says, I'm going to tie you up, and what God's saying to him, though, he's already let him know, and you, O son of man, surely they will put, meaning the people who don't like what you're saying, will put ropes on you and bind you with them so you cannot go out among them. So in other words, welcome to prophethood. Okay. Um, you're telling people things they don't want to hear to help save them and deliver them, and they're mad at you for it. And so this is a little more dramatic. Does God use dr- drama to call his people uh, through his prophets? Uh, to, does he call his po- prophets to difficult duty uh, to draw people back to him? Does he do that? Well, I guess if you read Ezekiel, you'd have to say, I guess so. Is God dramatic? I guess so. Why is God dramatic? Because God is not a robot, and we're not robots, and He's given them the law, but they haven't received the law. And God is—I won't call Him desperate, but He has a very desperate love for us. If you—if you, know, you get what I'm saying, a passion would be probably the better word. I want my people. To, I, I'm gonna—I won't leave one stone unturned to help these people see. That I love them and that there's a way back to me and that they need to accept what's already happened and deal with it and let me take them on. They need to turn back to me and I'll do whatever it takes to bring them, to communicate to them. Because it's not working through just the repeating of the law. So let me act it out. Let me reveal it out. Let me use people who are willing to be my tool. Like Ezekiel. And so... Um, God is seeking to touch them in their emotions. He's seeking to stir them. It's true. Verse 9 through 11. And also take for yourselves wheat, barley, beans, lentils. Those are all pretty good. That sounds like a soup that Kim would make. Or my wife. Or some of you. Millet and spelt. But those ones are a little grainier and a little tougher. And in their age where they were, it was a little bit more, what I read from their history is that that was a little bit more of the poverty food versus some of the other ones. And that, you know, these people are going to be under siege and you're going to and, he, and he put them in one vessel and make bread of them for yourself during the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat. You're only going to eat the food that I prescribe for you because you're, you're exemplifying for them that they're only going to get what they can get in that place. And on top of it, your food you shall eat by weight, 20 shekels a day from time to time you shall eat it. So you're going to, it's weighed out. And he goes about your water too. You shall also drink water by measure. One sixth of a hen from time to time you shall drink. Most of us drink water by measure because we're trying to drink enough, right? Oh, I better get my eight glasses in today. Does Diet Coke count? Does regular Pepsi, Ryan, regular Pepsi, does not count? Okay, it's not water. Somebody tell the man, okay? Now, (laughs) all right, but there he's measuring his water because he's only getting so much because they're going to be under siege. You all with me? You get this? So um, this is what happens, but at least he gets food to eat and then he gets water and then comes verse 12. (laughs) And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. What? Human waste. Then the Lord shall said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, while I will drive them. So I said, this is Ezekiel's, Okay, I got what you said, now may I speak. Ah, <laughs> oh, Lord God! Indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to him, See, I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. And by the way, we'll just I'll stop there for a minute, is um, first of all, it's very common in that area and other areas of the world in history, and even today there's places where people dry out cow dung, and it's used it. they use it for fuel for fire because not everybody has a forest in their backyard like we do. The guys from Malawi, they did have forests, but they denuded them. But even then, they weren't like here in the northeast. You know, Think more like Arizona or something, um, New Mexico or Mexico even, if you've been down in the mountains <coughs> south of Tecate and <coughs> east of Ensenada. It's pretty barren. There's barren places where people don't, they don't have firewood and they don't have fuel through history. By the way, I went 600 miles down into Mexico one year, many years ago, on a project with Food for the Hungry, a Christian organization, or maybe pseudo-Christian, but we went as the evangelism team. And there was a guy down there who was down there building a prototype methane fuel um, power source. And it was taking human waste, running it through its system, gaining the methane gas out, and then using it to light their gas stove, because, and using animal waste, too. So we aren't that even that far from it, in that the methane gas is what you can use to cook. So they were cooking with, well, anyway. The point isn't that. That was simply to calm you slightly. Now let's get you riled up again <laughs> and, and distraught. Okay, God says you use human waste to show them their defilement. In Deuteronomy, God said you shall not cook or use or touch human waste. He even told them how to clean up after themselves like nobody would do even in the 1600s, 1700s in England. God was ahead of the the curve (laughs) about cleanliness. And Ezekiel was a guy who was raised in the midst of all this confusion. He was a man that was focused and he had kept pure in his uh, kosher eating. And he'd never done any defiling things. And this would be quite defiling. No, God, please. And, And so, is God going too far? Well, Ezekiel thinks so. Right? Please, Lord, no. And you know what? So do people who think, and this is the common thought of man, I'm basically good. I got my problems. I got my shortcomings, but I'm basically good. Now, we're not here, listen, Life happens to people, and people get pressed, and people get hurt, and people get mistreated, and it's not their fault. Don't, let's make sure we cover this part. Things will happen to you in life that aren't your fault, and they're not fair. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens to you that's bad is because you're a sinner. But you do live in a fallen world. And that if it isn't your sin that gets you, then it's somebody else's. And I, you know, I'm not here to fix that because I don't have the power to fix that. I can speak what I understand from the Bible to be the truth. And that's that while we have good qualities, we're created in God's image and likeness and have great capacity for good. Every single one of us is not basically good. We're basically lost in sin. And that's the Bible, what the Bible teaches. Somebody says that's not what the Bible teaches. They're reading a different Bible. It does teach that, but it doesn't teach you're doomed to that and you have no hope and that God's mad at you and hates you. It teaches you that you have to face what your problem is so you get the right medicine to fix it. And we are not basically good. People who hear snippet, who think man is basically good and hear little snippets of the Bible, like this section, without any context, they think God's crazy, God's Weird, God's crude, God's mean, and therefore he's not real. I don't have to follow this God. But they have been duped by the soundbite. And there are people who are very willing to pull out all the negative soundbites that sound crazy in the Bible and say, this is your God. And I don't have time today to go through story after story to show you the ones that they speak of, that you, there's an answer for those. Not that everybody's going to be perfectly satisfied with the answer. But here today we see this, that, that Ezekiel is told, I want you to do these things because I'm using every means available through you to get the attention of people who are refusing to see. They've defiled themselves, but they, they believe what they want to believe about themselves in spite of my word and in spite of the obvious outcome." Can I say that again? Yes, I can. <laughs> okay. They defile themselves but believe what they want to about themselves in spite of God's word and the obvious results of their disobedience. They're in the middle of exactly what God said would happen and they're still saying no, it's not true. This isn't what God said. This isn't what's happening. It's all going to be okay because because I'm okay, you're okay. We need to think positive. Etc. Well, you know, if you have a six-year-old, and even when my kids were six, which is some years ago, right, when it was safer in the neighborhoods, but you'd let your kid go out. "Hey, David, you can go out till five thirty, but it's going to get dark at six, and I want you back here five thirty for dinner. Get ready for dinner, okay? You can go play. Well, five thirty rolls, and they're not there. You start first. You start getting angry, you know. If he comes back, and then pretty soon, by the end of the night, by looking for him, if he comes back alive, I'm going to kill him. You know, it's like, but you know, but you're, you're, you're looking for your kid, and you're calling for him. And then you call a friend or a neighbor, you know, is he there, is he there, you start looking. And then as it starts to get dark, you start to get frantic. Well... What are you saying, Rick? Is God frantic? Is God like that? You know, he's supposed to be this great, powerful God. He can do anything he wants. He, he's not like us like that. He could just do miracles and fix everything. He could just do miracles and show us who he is. Why doesn't he just do miracles and show us? Oh, miracles. Like when he took a group of people that were slaves that had absolutely no capacity to escape from a massive, the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, and plague miracle plagues, and then miracle Red Sea parts, and then miracle wandering in a wilderness where their shoes don't wear out, and where their food drops from heaven, and where <laughs> water comes out of a rock. And shall I go? And just every day is a miracle. You mean miracles like that, or do you, or do you mean miracles like like um, uh, like they go into a land that has seven nations that are stronger that are warriors, and they aren't warriors at all. They've had a few battles that just started before they came in and um, they come into a land that has seven nations, and some of those people are nine and ten feet tall. You say, well, I don't believe it. Well, okay, try seven. Have you ever seen most Jews? <laughs> Middle Eastern people, they're short. <laughs> and they take, and they wipe out, and Jericho, and it's, you mean miracles like that? Gotcha. You know, you mean miracles like the constant fulfillment of prophecy again and again through every single prophet. And the only answer for those who are uh, cynical and critical is to say, well, it must have been written after the fact. They couldn't have been written before because it's too accurate. So we know that it's just a fake. Only a bunch of things discredit that view. And one of them is the Dead Sea Scrolls in Isaiah, is intact 200 years before Christ, exactly what the copies they had said that were after Christ. I mean, you know, when they, in 1947, they find every single copy of Isaiah they've ever had from the original is the same as the copy that was from 200 B.C., well, the 200 BC isn't 700 BC, so all the things Isaiah prophesied in those few hundred years could have been done after. Well, okay, maybe they could, but there's some things Isaiah said that didn't come true until just recently. And Jesus prophesied in 33 AD Jerusalem, not one stone will be left on this temple of another. Well, that's just coincidence. Or well, that was written after, too. Well, I know. I mean, basically, I know people say we don't listen to facts. And, you, you, know, you know, I should listen to facts, but make sure they're facts. Uh, these are facts. And, um, and so I understand that people aren't going to listen to those facts because Israel being a nation again. But God does give, and Jesus coming and healing and his prophecies and his miracles, God gives rebellious people opportunity to repent and opportunity to be helped in the Babylonian captivity, and in our world today. God gives people opportunity to hear and to repent. But this is so crude, Rick. This is so extreme. Yeah, you're right. It's extreme. It's even crude. And Ezekiel Cries, God, please, no. I've never touched anything unclean. And God says, Okay. Okay, Ezekiel, I'm not going to make you cook with the human dung. Okay, Ezekiel, I'll listen to your cry and not let you become unclean. Not so for Jesus. Not so for Jesus. You see, if you want to learn the Old Testament, what it means, I'm not telling you I understand every bit of it. If you want to understand how to read and study the Old Testament, one of the things you do, to be sure, is get the context, understand it in where it was written to the people it was written to, like we just did at the beginning. You don't just pull stuff out of thin air and say, this means this. It means what it says in its context. But Jesus told the religious leaders in rebellion, you search the scriptures every day in your schools there. I'm expanding his words, but it's every single day from the time your kids are four years old, they're going to Hebrew school I'm not Hebrew school. <laughs> they're going that's what I went to. They're going to they're going to Bible training school. Talk about going, sending your kid to a Christian school. like Their whole culture, they, there was nothing outside of just their relig- Jewish religious culture. And you search the scriptures every day, thinking in them you have eternal life, and every single one of those scriptures testifies of me. So we are looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean you're going to pull out an understanding everywhere. There's going to be narrative stories and you know, layers of things. But in this, you not only look for Jesus, but you look to find Jesus this way. By comparison to the person that's there, what they're doing, how God deals with them, and by contrast. So the prophets compare to Jesus, don't they? Whom do men say that I am, he says to his disciples? Well, Jeremiah or or (laughs) Elijah or one of the prophets. Yeah, who do you say I am? But the people were likening Jesus to a prophet because Jesus was a prophet. And he was like the prophets. Or should I say the prophets were like him? Comparison. They suffered. They spoke truth. They were penalized for it. They were God's men with God's word coming through them. They acted out God's will in front of people. Were they like Jesus in that way? Yes. Not perfectly, but they were. In contrast, though, when you deal with the kings of Israel, here's a king. You have very few good kings, and they didn't do that much great good, though some of them did. But you would have to say most of it was in contrast, unlike King Jesus. Well, Ezekiel is like Jesus in what he goes through, but he is unlike Jesus in contrast. Ezekiel is told, you don't have to eat food cooked like this. Jesus is told when he asked the Father, and I know you know this story because we do it all the time, if there's any way, Father, for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, that cup, I'll avoid being crude. That cup God tells us what it really entails right here on the front of your bulletin. A verse that I think is, if I could sound sacrilegious, maybe it should be learned more than John 3.16, which just means you should learn John 3.16, then you should also learn this one. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin. He took the cup. He drank the cup. He became the cup. I don't know how to put it. Don't fault me for my inability. You're no better than me. Maybe you are better, but you can't figure it out either. Don't ask a man to fully explain it. Don't ask a man to fully understand it. Don't ask a man or a woman to be able to express the depth or the emotion of it. But make sure you got it. Make sure you got it, right? Right? And I believe you do, but he made him to become sin. Now, if it was just me and Dale's sin, that would be enough to just give you a heart attack. But if it was me and Dale and Mia, that would hardly be any more but a little. (laughs) you got to be kind to the ladies. But if it was everybody in this room... In every room that every person ever lived in, every person, every human, every terrorist, every self-righteous person, every person who ever stole money from, bilked millions from the people's uh, retirement accounts, every mass murderer, every child molester. He died for the sins, the Bible says, of the whole world. Do you have that figured out? Have you got that between your ears like you got that down? I get that. I don't get that. I don't get that. He made him to be, who knew no sin, to become sin. How far did God come? How far did Jesus come? What lengths will God go to to save people? You see, he didn't say I'll go this far but not that far before I've gone through the list I'll go to earth but not as a poor person I'll be a poor person but I won't be made fun of I'll be made fun of but I won't be spit on I'll be spit on but I won't be beaten well I'll be beaten but I won't be crucified naked go through the list he, he didn't stop he didn't give his list of boundaries he didn't, he, there was no argument But if well father I'll do this but not that no boundaries and I'm not saying we don't need healthy boundaries get the point here but we, sometimes we don't see how clear God's love is for others through us. I'll go this far, but no more. Ezekiel had his boundaries, and God respected him. But God had no boundaries for Jesus. He would suffer it all. He would take it all. He would take the worst of the worst of humanity. The worst that could come out of us is what Jesus took on the cross. The worst that is in us is what Jesus took on the cross. If that wasn't necessary, and if we're all just basically good, then what in the world is the cross about? It's a decoration. It's a religious ornament. So, what did Jesus do? You know, it is extremely honorable that a soldier would die in battle protecting his buddies falling on a grenade we should give them that and it has to be posthumously (laughs) we have to give them that purple heart you have to they 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 sacrificed their life to save others it we just had two firemen in our nation die just just this last week going into a building pulling people out and then the floor collapsed and the two firemen died you have to honor these people it is totally right is it not We honor and say, what a hero. He died a hero when a man or a woman would jump in front of a bus to push a child out of the way and then get hit by the bus, correct? But my friends, this is not what Jesus did. I don't fault myself for having used that example or you or others. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't jump on a grenade. He didn't go into a burning building. He didn't jump in front of a bus. He was crucified as a criminal. He was paying a penalty that he had nothing to do with, and he took upon him the evil judgment as a criminal. Do you understand the difference between dying a hero and dying a criminal? An evildoer. After 33 years on earth, as a man of only doing good, he suffered and died as wickedness and evil and under judgment. 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 It's why we can't preach about Christ like, Jesus really loves you, really wants to help you. Just turn to him, you know, God, for your sins. And, uh, and he also wants to give you a really great life and a new car. You can't preach that. That must God have mercy on us. He died as a criminal. Daniel and Ezekiel did good in Babylon. And they suffered for it. People do good today and honor the Lord and will suffer for it. That is part of the mix. But no one did what Jesus did or came close. No one went as far as Jesus came. Cooking human waste would be so crude and so gross. Yeah, you're right. But how about becoming and carrying on your Back and in your body and in your soul. You know, it turned dark for three hours. And as and I know we did some of this last week. May we do some of this continuously. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, I believe that if we learn to go to the cross, and, and it's here. I mean, that's what this story is about. Now, you may see something different in it. But if you only look at the surface level of it and go, this is just about... God using a prophet, but the comparison and the contrast to your Savior, Jesus Christ, is right here. Ezekiel, I'll let you off the hook. Jesus, I'm placing you on the hook because I want Rick Cohen to be set free. I want Kevin Tomer to be set free. Your name. This is our Savior. Are you thankful? See, your spirit will never get tired of worshiping the Lord for what he's done for you. Your flesh, your flesh, your human nature will never understand it or respond to it really well. Your flesh is not excited. Your flesh is not moved. Your flesh, (laughs) I'm, I'm not that bad. Your spirit knows. Your spirit knows how wonderful it is that Jesus loves you this much. Your spirit knows how deeply you've offended God. Your spirit knows that, once again, because I could not not do communion today. Your spirit knows that there's power in the blood and the broken body of Jesus. And your spirit knows that you you must celebrate. If you're you're not convinced of this, then you can't celebrate. If you're still bent that you totally want to sin and you don't want to hear about Jesus, then you can't celebrate, and you shouldn't. But if you know that you need celebration because you need the salvation that you've been given, and you need to live in it, and you need to appreciate it, and you need to just bask in it, then you are free to come to God's table because he did it for you. And you can't add a thing to it but you can celebrate it. I'm not here to be, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I want you to be thankful and I want to be thankful for what good God has done.